Last Sunday, we started a sermon series called, um, uh, on the book of Revelation, End Times. And some of you may wonder, why would we as a church do a sermon series of six, six messages, 30-minute messages roughly, on the book of Revelation? That's, bit, that's three hours. You can't do justice to that. That's way too little time. So not nearly, we should do not three hours, we should do 30 hours, and we still would just be, uh, not do justice to the whole book. One of the reasons is we don't have a lot of time. As churches, we used to meet three times a week. I mean, we would meet Sunday morning and have our message, and then we would meet in the evening and have a, have a, a session again and meet on Wednesday night. So we used to be a different culture than we are now. And I'm not saying this as a judgment, but to be to condemning, but we, are, we lead busy lives. I mean, it is what it is. And so we try to condense or summarize or package in a way that we can still get the thrust of the meaning, what is this book telling us? I don't want to start quite there this morning in my sermon. Some of you watch YouTube videos, I know, and some of you have seen a clip called Minutes from Disaster. And I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I know some of you have seen this. I've seen it, and it's fascinating to watch some of these. And it's almost like suspense. You see this happening, and you, of course, already know what this is going to turn out to be. And, and then you think, okay, what if they just had, and what if they, and why didn't they, and, and so on. But it's too late. Disaster happens, huge loss, and so on. In March of 1909, it was kind of shortly after the Industrial Revolution, times were good. People were were enthusiastic. They were excited. They were optimistic about life on earth. Times were good, and new inventions were coming out all the time, wireless communication, new ways of doing things, mass production, and all kinds of good things were happening in the early 1900s. March of 1909, a shipping company in Britain began to build a ship, and it was going to be the biggest, the fastest, the longest, the the most luxurious floating thing on earth. And you know where this is going. It was the Titanic. It was an engineering marvel of its day, bigger and better and more luxurious than anything up to its time. And on April 12, 1912, it set sail on its first trip across the Atlantic. And on board were some of the wealthiest, some of the most famous, middle class and poor. A lot of people represented from across Europe were on that ship on the way to America, some to uh, just go on a cruise, some to make a new life, and some for business. And it was great. It was glorious. It was what they would say awesome. On day four of their journey across the Atlantic, the ship was going full steam ahead. They sailed into what was called an ice field. There was wireless communication already back in those days. I think it's Morse code or something. Anyway, they were receiving warnings from other ships in the shipping lanes, icebergs ahead. And the captain was warned that there were icebergs, but nah, it's no consequence to us. Our ship is an unsinkable one. We're, we're, we're okay. We don't need to, bo- to worry about that. And just shortly before midnight, the lookout what's called a crow's nest, spotted an iceberg ahead, sent the warning down, and they tried to steer clear of the iceberg. But as you know the story, 
it was a little too late. They scraped the iceberg, cut a big gash in the side of the ship, and they were dead in the water. At first, they kind of believed, you know, maybe we can, we can survive this. Maybe just the front part of the ship will be flooded because it did have compartments. It was designed with that in mind. But it was too badly damaged, and this unsinkable ship sank in less than three hours. Over a thousand people drowned. From the 3,000 plus people, only just over a thousand survived in the few lifeboats they had. Nothing they could have done could have changed the outcome of that disaster. It was a man-made catastrophe. No amount of effort could have saved them. They could have rearranged the furniture on the ship. It wouldn't have saved them. It wouldn't have made a difference. There was nothing they could do. They were not prepared. Why am I telling a story to start off a sermon series on, uh, to, to continue a sermon series on the book of Revelation? Our world has an expiry date on it, if you don't know. It's going to meet destiny one day. Jesus very clearly predicted this. That the day is coming when he will come back. He says it's going to be like lightning flashing from the east to the west. It's going to be grand, it's going to be great, and it's going to be scary. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that plays itself out in the, in the up to that point, And we're now 2,000 years into it. But he also says, well, Peter writes that a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. But Jesus also talks about the consequence of those who are not ready when this will all go down. Matthew 21, verse 44, he says, and I don't have this in my PowerPoint here, but it says, whoever falls on this rock, meaning his teaching, his, 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 meaning him as the rock of Salvation said, whoever falls on this rock will break to pieces, but on whomever it falls will grind him to powder. In other words, there is no escape. We reject him, we reject salvation, we reject life. And we don't know exactly how this will all pan out, so to speak, or how this will all work out. We know it's coming. And no amount of effort by any government organization, the United Nations, or any organization whatsoever is going to prevent this. They're not going to stop it. They can't change course, change direction. It's interesting how people are trying to be in charge and in control. The truth is, we're on a sinking ship. One day this earth will collide with the judgment and justice of God, and Jesus himself will take his church home. And evil will be forever banished. And when he comes back, he's not coming to negotiate. He's not coming to bargain, to make deals, to make agreements. He's coming to take over. But before that happens, in its final end, it will get very ugly. The apostles write about it. Jesus talked about it. And people say in this world things like, Mother Earth. It's not our mother. This earth is not our mother. We are on this piece of dirt called earth. It's God's planet. He made it. We didn't conceive it. We didn't create it. They didn't create us. Just a place for us to live for our season, to live out our calling, our purpose, before our meeting with the King of kings and Lord of lords and the judge of all creation. So for our sermon today, we want to continue our series that we started last Sunday on end times. Last Sunday was our first sermon, and this Sunday we're going to continue with that. 
We saw last Sunday that heaven is a glorious place. And we talked about this, this one who's on the throne, meaning God, and he holds the scroll of time, of eternity in his hand. And everything is contained in it. So he holds the universe, the world, events, everything is he holds in his hand. And there were strange pictures, word pictures, and symbols. We looked at some of these things. And we have to admit we understand perhaps very, very little. Except we do know how it's going to come out. Today we're not going to look at the picture of heaven. Today we're going to look at the picture of earth. And it's dark. It's gloomy, and it's ugly. Today's sermon, we will look at how some of this darkness is described. In the Bible, it says that we reap what we sow, and this world has been sowing evil for a long time. Today, we want to see what happens when God opens and unleashes the forces of of heaven against the sins of the world. What happens when sin reaps its harvest? What happens when the earth collides with God's judgment? It's a known fact to all churches across the world that our world is not a pretty place. Morally and socially, it is deteriorating. Everything points in that direction. Our culture is blind to it for the most part. Oh, we're aware of climate change, all right. I'm not saying anything bad or good about it. I'm just saying we're aware of it. I'm not denying it. I'm saying that it doesn't exist. That's not what I'm here to say. But the moral climate is deteriorating at a much faster rate. Our world is rife, saturated, oozing with greed, lies, deception, immorality. And it's not getting better. And most people in this world doesn't affect us, doesn't bother us. And somehow there's this idea we can keep sowing and sowing and sowing and there will never be a harvest. We can do whatever we like, there will be no consequences. And just because we live in a world where sin is called good and wrong is called right, changes nothing. If I come to a red light in town and say, you know what, I think I'm going to call red-green from now on, and say, I'm going to red. You think cars are going to stop just because I call red-green? It's not going to work. I'm still going to get hit. But I called it green. Why didn't the car stop? My distortion of truth and of reality does not change reality. Our world is on a collision course with God's justice and God's judgment, and the outcomes will be devastating. I want to read again an extensive part of Revelation. A few kind people reminded me gently today to be slower. Thank you. If I go too fast, just go like this, if I catch your eye. That's one of my weaknesses. I want to read slower. So let's begin reading Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. We will not read all four chapters completely. We'll read most of it, but not all of it. So if, if I go a little over time today, please bear with me. We're now continuing in Revelation chapter 8, where the seals of the, where the Lamb is continuing to break the seals that, of the scroll that God had in his right hand. So here we go. Revelation 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. 
I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. Verse 4, the smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth. And thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blasts. They haven't even started yet. Look what's happening already. Let's continue verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One-third of the earth was set on fire. One-third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One-third of the water in the sea became blood. One-third of all things living in the sea died, and one-third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. Then the angel blew his, the third angel blew his trumpet. And a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was bitterness. It made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, one-third of the moon, one-third of the stars, and they became dark, and one-third of the dark day was dark, and also one-third of the night. Then I looked. And I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air, terror, terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. Let's pause for a bit. This is an awful lot to take in. A lot goes on here. But the main point that we can take out from this is that everything goes down. And it's not at its worst point yet. What all this third means, I don't quite know. I, I'll be honest with you. I know, there's a lot of stuff here I don't quite know. But it's, it's, God is very precise. He's very exact. He's very measured. He knows exactly what he's doing. All things are calculated and calibrated, and he's exact in his dealings with earth. But the point is, he's dealing with earth. Everything fails. And his forces of justice get to work. And earth has no defense. There's no protection. There's no escape. There's no getting away. There's no avoiding. It's like God is cleaning house. His angels are sent to work to blow the trumpets, and when they blow, everything goes haywire. The natural order of things is kicked off balance. There's chaos, confusion, destruction, pain, suffering, and death in massive proportions. Not everything is clear, as I've said, about all these symbols and about the details as what all of this means. But what is clear in the scripture is John has been given a vision. The apostle John sees something, and earth is not doing so well. Today, many people are so worried about this planet we call earth. I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of it. We shouldn't abuse it. It's been given to us by God himself, to Adam and Eve and, and the human race. A place we've been put for a season, but we know what sin has done to it. 
It's destroying it. And we should be careful how we treat it. But regardless, we do not own it. We will not stay here. And God is going to finish it. Maybe we wonder sometimes, why is this world the shape that is in? The Bible teaches us it's because of sin. And if it wasn't for the greed, for the deception, for the immorality, for the, for the debauched and idolatrous lifestyle of so many people, it wouldn't be the place that it is. And again, I'm not here to argue on anything like climate change and those matters, but we shouldn't destroy this world, we should treat it as a gift. I want to direct our thoughts to our hearts, to our souls. God puts us here for one reason and one reason only. And it says in the, in the book of Genesis, it says, let us make people in our likeness after our image, God says. And it means plurality. There's God the Father and the Spirit. And we're His image bearers to represent Him here on earth. And we have to ask the question, how well have we been doing as a human race representing God on earth? And because of all the sin, the judgment will come. And the judgment of God on sin on this earth will be holy and just. It will not be more than this world deserves, not less. It's going to be exactly what He decrees. The consequences of sin will come. Isn't it amazing how we want to harvest more than we sow if we plant a garden? Or how we want to harvest more than we sow if we plant a field? We sow a sack, a bag of corn. We want a lot of bags of corn. We sow a few potatoes. We want a sack of potatoes. We sow a few cucumber seeds. We want a bushel of cukes. But when it comes to sin, somehow, oh, that's the reverse. Nobody can tell me what to do. You mind your own business. I'll, I'll do what I want. I don't care what they say. I don't care what the preacher says. I don't care what mom and dad say. I don't care what the church says. I don't care what... And so I'll do what I want. I can lie, steal, cheat, commit adultery as much as I want, and nobody can tell me what to do, and it's okay. It's my own life. But then the harvest. Why is it that we think there will be no consequences? Who are we kidding? Well, if chapter 8 was bad, chapter 9 is worse. Let's continue reading chapter 9, beginning verse 1. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star that had fallen to the earth from the sky, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. When he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and air turned dark from the smoke. Then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth, and they were given power to sting like scorpions. Let's read verse 4 as well and pause there. They were told not to harm the grass or the plants or trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. I don't know exactly what this means. But what we do see is God is in control at how justice and judgment is measured out and applied. God is in control. But He will release suffering and allow suffering to be released on this earth. And it's going to increase, not decrease. But God holds some of it back, interestingly enough. And it says that those people who are sealed with the seal of God will be spared the sting of the scorpions. Will there actually be physical, literal scorpions coming out somewhere and stinging people? It says, but I don't think it's, it's I think it's a symbolic message of some kind. Not sure what that means. But suffering will come, and some will be affected, and some won't be. Let's continue on, verse, verse 20. 
Revelation 9 verse 20. But the people who did not die in these plagues, listen, it gets very fascinating, still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders, their witchcraft or sexual immorality, or their thefts. It's as if there's a complete, closed attitude toward anything holy and righteous. No matter what God allows, the world is not listening. The earth is reeling from the judgment, the destruction on the seas, the destruction on the lands, the people dying of diseases and sicknesses, but nothing turns them back to God. They don't care, and they don't care that they don't care. Rejecting God is the thing to do. They continue in their ungodly, immoral lifestyles. Nothing is too evil, nothing too immoral, nothing too gross to engage and indulge in. We will not read chapter 10. We will just continue with 11. But let me say a few words about chapter 10. The angel comes down from heaven. Then another angel makes an announcement. And John is going to write this down. And the the angel says, "Don't, don't write this down. Keep this secret. Seal it. And so he doesn't write it down. But John is given a scroll. He's told to eat it as a symbol, as symbolic. And he's told again to go and prophesy to many people, which he's given an assignment. But then the things shift a little bit. And let's continue reading verse chapter 11, beginning verse 1. Chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring stick. And I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers, but do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will be clothed in burlap. That's not a very fancy clothing, but anyway. And they will prophesy during those 1260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them and he will conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them, and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, Come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. Seven thousand people died in the earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past, but look, the the third terror is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. 
The 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshipped him. And they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is, who always was. For, for now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It's time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear your name from the least to the greatest. It is time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. Then in heaven, the temple of God was opened and the ark of his covenant could be seen inside the temple. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed and roared and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. It is exhausting to read and think through passages like this. So much is unclear, especially to me. Like I, I just have to admit it. So much is beyond my understanding. It is simply much too deep. But there are truths that stick out very obviously that we need to pay attention to. God's message will go out and it will not be stopped. It will prevail. And Jesus himself has said that the, the word will go through all the world. How that exactly fits, I don't know. But he will not be silenced. But those who give his message are not going to have a good time of it. And what all the tormenting and all that means, I'm not quite sure. Much of it is symbolic perhaps here. But the message is going out, but the world is dead set against God. And anything that points to God, there's demonic obsession and intention to get rid of everything and anything that points to God. And interestingly enough, God allows his servants to be killed. And what is interesting even more is the celebration, the exaltation, the jubilation that happens when justice is squashed, when truth is squashed, is suppressed. Now we're free. Now we can do whatever we want and nobody's going to stop us. We can make the rules, the laws, live in total abandon and indulgence, whatever we wish. Finally, the cross is abolished. No more religion. No more faith. I think my battery's getting low here. You know what comes to mind when I read stuff like this? The world will gloat. That is what the world is doing with the message of the gospel. All sense of morality and decency is being pushed aside and no more right and wrong, whatever, whatever you want. But there comes a day when everybody will realize, and Jesus, Paul writes, he said, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Let's go back to verse 15. And with that, we will close. Verse 15. It's the last slide here. 
Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices and shouting in heaven. And this, this phrase here, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. It was always his to begin with. Who are we to think that we could take over and do with it as we please? It's not ours, never was and never will be. We're just stewards, we're servants. And we'll get rewarded or punished depending on how what we've done with it. The psalmist writes, the fool has said in his heart there's no God. Oh, how they wish that were true. They really wish that were true. As I said before, God has not just come to bring judgment. He comes to take over. He comes to clean house. And everything that does not match what he wants is discarded, is destroyed. And he will rule. The judgments on sin are coming. We may not see them now. We may not even believe it will be that big of a deal. It will be. As I said before, with God, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. And it's a very short time. So let's conclude this. God is not dead. He's not silent. He's not asleep. He holds that scroll in his hands. He holds time, history, and the future in his hands. All powers are in his hands. Today, we still have the judgments on sin. And the beautiful thing is there's grace, there's love, there's mercy. For all who want the gift of life can escape the judgment. The people on the Titanic had been given warnings. The captain had his power to decide to ignore or accept them. He thought it's not so bad. It's not a big deal. We'll take this journey in record time. And that big, fancy, luxurious ocean liner sank to the bottom before it ever crossed the Atlantic, its first journey. This world is on a collision course with the justice and judgment of God. Friends, this world is a sinking ship. It's been taken over by hostile forces. And they're not getting any better as time goes on. But our king is coming. I like the opening verses that were read to us, what Lowell read about what John sees Jesus as, this glorious, majestic figure. He is the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. You see, Jesus came the first time to identify with us as a human being, took on flesh and blood, came to die for our sins on the cross, taught us the way of love and grace, taught us salvation. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's our only avenue, our only hope. He rose from the grave. He's now at the right hand of God. And when he comes back, he comes back to take over, not to negotiate, not to bargain or make deals. He's coming back to take over. We can get with him or we can deny him. We can surrender or reject him. But if we wait too long till we die, then it's too late. If we wait till he comes back, then we've missed the mark. We can receive his mercy now, today. What I want to leave you with this morning is Revelation is a book of hope. Hope that God is going to do something about this world. Hope that God is going to take care of his people. Hope that ungodliness and immorality and all the sin in the world will not forever go unchecked. It may seem that way now, but it will have its day. So my encouragement to us today is allow Jesus to be the captain. He's already got the title anyway. He's asking us to follow. He's already won the war. He'll help you fight your battles. 
So instead of us getting busy on the Titanic, rearranging the furniture, making a better place, let's focus on getting in the lifeboat. Let's be watchful. Let's be alert. Let's be prayerful. Because in this world, let me tell you, before it gets better, it's going to get worse. We're going to continue our sermon series on Revelation. And next Sunday, it's going to, we're going to continue with this, what's going to happen to this world. I'm going to talk about the mark of the beast. I'll confess right now, I don't understand all of it, but there's some things we need to be very much aware of when we talk about these things. This world is headed for disaster and for destruction, but we serve a loving God, a God of mercy and grace and redemption, and it's him we want to deal with. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, this is a difficult book to go through, and really we should take a lot more time, but we do know that the world we live in, how our time is constrained. Lord, I ask that each one of us would take time to read this book prayerfully and meditate. What is it you want us to learn from it? Lord, we do know the message of truth is loud and clear in it. You love us, you care for this world, but you will not let sin go unchallenged and unpunished. One day it will all come to a head. And Lord, help us, Lord, to help us, Lord, to serve you, to repent where we need to, to embrace life, and accept the love and the grace you have for us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.